Welcome to Through the Corporate Glass, a podcast that explores career choices. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Through the Corporate Glass. I'm your host Pramod. Today I'm going to talk about how do you carve out a career doing systems programming? What skills are needed to be a systems programmer in today's landscape? And my guest is Arun Raghavan, CEO and founder of Asymptotic, a company which builds high quality low level system software. By systems programming, I refer to those software on a computer system that an end user will never use directly but which are still essential for end user apps themselves to work. Traditional examples are operating systems, device drivers, file systems, the networking stack, etc. Today we could extend that to include virtual machines, distributed schedulers, game engines and even multimedia frameworks. As I mentioned, Arun is the founder of Asymptotic, who work with system software that runs on speakers, planes and a variety of internet of things devices. Arun has worked as an engineer at Nvidia, Collabora and as a freelance consultant. He's been a long-term contributor to open source system software projects like GStreamer, Pulse Audio, and of late Pipe Wire. Hey, Arun, welcome to the show. Hey, Pramod, thanks for having me. Great. Do you want to add some more detail about the tools, frameworks, and languages you've used as a system software programmer over all these years? Sure, I'm happy to. System software um, is, of course, a very wide term, right? So just to drill down on what aspects um, I work on, it's more the plumbing layers of uh, mostly Linux-based systems, uh, often embedded systems, mostly multimedia. And so when I talk about plumbing, I mean, we're literally taking, say, for example, audio data from a media player out to your speakers. What is that involved, right? All the software that is involved in that, we work on some of those things. Or um, the software that takes video from your webcam and takes that all the way to say your browser or to Zoom for a call, right? So those are the kinds of plumbing layers I'm referring to. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the work we do is usually in, in C and C++ uh, and more recently in Rust. Um, that's kind of the projects that you mentioned, GStreamer, Pulse Audio, PyPy, all of them are written in C with some Rust bindings and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then applications uh, that use these projects are often written in Python, um, in Java, in, uh, like I've worked in Haskell, PureScript, I'm doing some amount of Lua right now uh, for Pipewire. So this is a kind of broad uh, base of languages and uh, tools. Uh, I'm quite old school Vim slash NeoVim and GDB, and that's kind of my workflow. Oh, okay. Sounds like a lot of classic uh, things in a sense. <laughs> for good or bad. Also, this is mostly the Linux, uh, maybe desktop and embedded world. Is that right to say? Broadly, yes, but it's not limited to that. So some of these projects, um, particularly GStreamer, finds application in uh, Android, iOS, uh, sort of cross-platform multimedia as well. Oh, right. Yeah, mobile is one big form factor. So how did you get into this world of system programming and also you know, continue to stay in this field? What has your journey been like? Um, I found that I like to tinker with computers at a very early age. Um, we had a computer lab in my school in when I was nine or so, and I ended up starting to kind of uh, sneak into uh, into the lab after school from fifth standard onwards. And then, um, you know, eventually we got a computer at home and I really liked to play around with it. 
inevitably um, cause things to break. And that was always an enjoyable learning experience for me. At the one point, I just, for kicks, wrote to the first fight for bites and wiped out like the uh, the boot sector just to see what happens and things like that. So that was kind of, that was always enjoyable to me. Um, when I finished school and college um, and started working, I found myself working in uh, the electronic design automation space. So it's kind of chip design. Um, how do you go from a description of your uh, of your uh, chip in logical terms to an actually physically placed uh, physical chip? And this was a very interesting space, but it was more a sort of computer science, theoretical computer science heavy kind of space rather than something where you're working on the innards of the system itself. And I realized that um, I really wanted to go, like in the process of working on this, I realized that what excites me is the lower layers of, um, of the software stack. So what I ended up doing is I decided to then do a master's focusing on file systems and trying to, you know, like pick up some things about uh, how does the Linux kernel work and file systems have always been something I'm very, I've been very curious about. So I started working on some of those things. Mm -hmm. And then when I graduated, I kept finding work in this kind of space. That's interesting. Um, let's get into a little more concrete uh, things at this point. So far we've been talking about, you know, some of the systems or you know the names of software libraries languages so on maybe can you dig into for example what does it take to build a piece of system software you know maybe take a one or two examples from your career and say what skills and concepts you learned as you went about building you know one particular piece of system software sure so um one of my early projects uh, when i was working on some sort of embedded uh, devices in nvidia was um working on what is called an uh, a big banking i square c uh, driver sorry you'll have to repeat that what it's a bit banging i square c driver so i'll, I'll, I'll break it down so i square c is a is a simple protocol for two um integrated circuits two chips to talk together right? okay. it's a relatively um slow protocol i think it's basically you can do 100 hertz or one kilohertz so it's kind of that that order of magnitude and so we had this um, this Marvel uh, system on chip that we, that was running on this embedded uh, board, and there were some peripherals it was talking to via this I2C protocol. As it happened with that particular Marvel SOC, as we increased the clock speed, the integrity of the signal was not sufficient for the protocol to actually work. So the peripheral didn't work. Mm -hmm. Right. First, we had to dig into understanding why it's not working, right? So I kind of had to first understand what I2C is. Until that point, I had not I had no clue what that was. So I had to look at the I2C documentation, like the whatever documentation there on the internet for the protocol itself, mm -hmm. and then literally pull out a uh, oscilloscope. Right, so I was just about to ask, is it like a protocol at the network level or is it more like electric signal kind of? Literally electric signals between two chips. Okay. So as, as it turned out, um, I also had to go back to my fundamental, fundamentals of digital circuits. So you have a set of time and a whole time uh, for, uh, for a signal so that the receiving end can kind of understand that a transition has happened between a zero and one in, in a digital circuit. Okay. So it had to refresh kind of these kind of basics. Mm -hmm. And then it turned out that uh, as we increase the clock speed, the set of time and whole time were not actually meeting the specification that uh, would allow the peripheral to understand the transitions, right? Okay. And then we went to the chip specification and found that there was an actual errata which said that it cannot work. 
So, so then um, what we decided to do is um, write a what is called a bit banging driver. So, and so we effectively implemented the protocol as software. Oh, okay. As you can imagine, knowing nothing about any of these things, it involved a lot of going in and understanding uh, the protocol, understanding um, sort of the nuances of how things connect to each other. I'm not an electronics or a digital circuits person. So just even trying to understand all of that was um, was a quite a challenge. I had a support system within the company, of course. So that was that was one kind of standout problem just because it was so strange. Right, and also early in your career, so it really probably hits you hard. Yeah, yeah. Another kind of completely different kind of problem, uh, when I started doing working for uh, this open source consultancy, one of our early projects was to implement a um, media scanner for DLNA on a phone. And I'll, I'll walk through what all of those things are. So DLNA is a sort of open standard for devices to talk to each other on your home network. And the idea is that you might have uh, media on, say, a hard disk connected to your router, and you might have uh, a TV that can display that media, and you might have a phone that can you can use to control, hey, take this from here and play it on that. Right, so that it's kind of a protocol. So the, 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 the DLNA server existed, and we basically needed a way to scan the media on the phone um, and present the metadata about that media in a standard way so that the DLNA server could expose that. So you, you've taken photos or videos on your phone, and you can browse that on your TV and say, hey, I want to play this or I want to see this. We had to first write the bits that understood various types of media. Uh, so we, we were using GStreamer here, so there were some um, infrastructure pieces written, but I had to go and understand, for example, what uh, what does the H.263 video format look like, so that I can pull out, um, say, the resolution of a video mm -hmm. uh, from, like, I can parse that and pull out the resolution and whatever parameters of the video, or for H.264 or AAC for audio or MP3 for audio, making sure we have all those um, metadata bits, and then trying to come up with some sort of unifying way to describe these formats in a way that a media server can say, hey, take this and throw it out over some XML-like format. The formats were one part of the problem, understanding just what all these pieces are, what are the protocols they're using to talk to each other, what is relevant for me to be able to extract and publish. Um, so each of those took some effort to understand and then uh, generalize. Effectively. I mean, just off the top of my head, I'm thinking this probably requires good attention to detail and, you know, also a lot of curiosity, I guess. Yes, I, I think the in both cases, I think the, the main thing that I realized is that you have to be um, willing to go to primary sources, like go read a specification and, mm -hmm. um, and be able to, it, sometimes it can take some patience because specification writers are already in a space where they kind of now have understood everything or have a mental model of the thing they want to explain to you mm -hmm. and now and you kind of have to make sure your uh, mental gears are matching theirs while you're reading so that you understand intent and so on and so forth so that is one kind of skill uh, that you need to understand um, you need to like you need to be able to and willing to go into new topics and just say okay i can learn this or at least i can learn enough about this to try to make sense of it right. um, 
so so those those i think were the probably the primary common threads i found between these and other projects that i've had to work on i mean just trying to relate to my own background because my work has mostly been you know java databases applications and data engineering and then data infrastructure big data systems right so it mm-hmm. kind of you can say this is like as i mentioned in the intro right like part of bit of the fabric of system software in the modern world which is basically distributed systems and uh, data infrastructure but not too much beyond that so let's get, continue this conversation a bit more like you know what would you say are some essential skills you know that you need to sustain a career not just skills also like you we were talking what kind of mindset or attitude does one needs to cultivate right right so i think the the main thing um is probably patience and perseverance okay. right because often it's these you you just come across strange problems uh, or problems that seem strange until you understand them mm-hmm. right and um it can be a bit of a frustrating process and i don't know if this is necessarily um unique to system software in any way but uh, in some sense you you might not find as much uh, white support necessarily or you might not necessarily find people who hit the same problems as you has that happened to you where you hit a wall and for a day or two not made progress and i'm just, like i i can't count the number of times right like the the number of times where i've just spent days and days and sometimes it's weird and hard problems sometimes it's just silly things that you would not have imagined are happening right the silliest thing that i've ever done is i spent a whole two days trying to understand why a media player that was writing was not working and just it so happened that the set, the setup on the device that i was using versus my uh, desktop the underlying uh, ui library was compiled with different parameters and so one had a main loop running implicitly and what did not so literally none of my events were coming back wow you have no idea what's going on yeah it takes perseverance and but but it's not i don't think there like there is a go to way to deal with this which is how science deals with this right mm-hmm. so the scientific method is form a hypothesis form an experiment to test the hypothesis observe the result uh, the results and repeat until you have you validate one right it's like debugging basically exactly and i think the other thing i would add um, that is useful as a skill is you might be working at a certain layer okay i'm putting this pipeline together to play audio right it always helps to think about what's going on one level below and one level above okay so one level below is just understanding okay i hand off audio to some api what's happening after that mm-hmm. right how is it actually doing the playback what is going on there um and that helps that helps when something goes wrong you have a slightly deeper understanding to think about what are the possibilities what could be going wrong and on the flip side knowing what's happening one level above gives you empathy right so if you're building these systems mm-hmm. probably somebody is using either um, end users developers and just being able to look one level above gives you empathy for how is your the system that you are um writing or modifying or developing whatever that is how is it being used yeah i think that's a great point because i was just thinking along those lines see because from what i've discussed right like some software seems to be like a conversation between a programmer and a computing device of some sort we didn't speak about human aspect until now right so i think in application programming or different kinds of you know business applications you end up you know talking to humans and, and there's also probably there's a bit more leeway in terms of requirements and scope like you can say okay this is not possible can we do this instead and stuff i think you probably work with harder uh, 
fixed in stone kind of requirements are there. That can often be the case because um, you might be working with, say, hey, this hardware or this firmware on this device works like this. And sometimes you have some, you might have a conversation if you're working in um, in a company where, you know, that hardware or that firmware team is also in your company, you might be able to have a conversation saying, hey, we need this and therefore can you change this? But sometimes you might not. You mentioned patience and perseverance for starters. Like somebody getting into the field, right, would probably give up much sooner. I mean, I, I was also thinking maybe the fact that you started off early might have smoothened out the learning curve for you, tinkering with computers, perhaps. That's absolutely, that's quite, that is, that is almost certainly true. Just feeling more native to um, all of this, right? Like I, my, I first installed Linux on my uh, home machine in 1998. So this is like after my 10th standard holidays. So that that is also, of course, a matter of fortune that, you know, I found that, hey, this is something I like doing at a young age and then privilege in that I had access to resources to be able to do these things. One thing I think that, you know, it's, it does make it hard is there's not a lot of documentation necessarily. So then it's not very easy to get into some of these things, especially the multimedia domain. Right. And also, Considering that you mentioned, you know, you should know one layer below, one layer above, and also there's this bunch of things that could go wrong or stuff that you need to know. Do you find that you need to consciously, you know, get yourself to acquire knowledge or, you know, the basics or go consciously say, okay, I don't know enough about this and I'm sure this will help in a future project. Let me sit, sit down and study this. I, I think it, I, I think there is benefit to that. And in a sense, you might have to do some things where you don't see a clear benefit so one very sort of um, tangential um, thread in sort of my learnings was around, uh, by the time I was like 30, 31, I actually felt like I was ossifying because all I was doing was C. Right? I was working on GStream and Pulse Audio and I was maintaining Pulse Audio by that point. And so most of my work was in that space. And um, I was starting to feel like, hey, maybe I want to try to learn something very new so that I'm not completely um, sort of entrenched only in this one space. Right? So uh, our common friend, friend Avinav Sarkar was uh, teaching Haskell um, at the Nalanza offices. So I kind of signed up for that. Mm -hmm. And um, it was quite a painful experience having to learn this entirely new way of thinking about programming. Right. So because just the, they're diametrically opposed to it. Maybe for the sake of listeners, we should clarify Haskell is like a very high level, purely functional programming language and comes from, uh, and is used as like a framework for, you know, ex doing experiments in programming languages and nothing to do with system software. Exactly. So I, I did not expect this to ever be something that could, I would find useful in my work other than just doing some stretches with my brain. Uh, but eventually, in more recent times when I've had to start learning Rust, it turns out a lot of that programming language theory, that, that research that has sort of um, kind of uh, developed through the Haskell ecosystem has landed in Rust and probably other languages like Swift and uh, Kotlin and all of these languages. And it's an unexpected benefit that it was a lot easier for me to jump into Rust than it would have been if I hadn't learned these things. Mm -hmm. I think one of the questions I was thinking about is one thing people would wonder is one, how do you get into systems programming? The other amazing thing is that you've actually continued doing that for quite a while, right? So mm -hmm. did you ever feel the pull towards 
maybe as you said the website or even the mobile side or because my understanding is the the, the things that you work on change relatively slowly compared to those things that's true it's true so i mean it has been it's been interesting at least for me to try things out right maybe not necessarily professionally but if for example it's like hey like write a toy android app see what that looks like um or write a toy website like or help somebody with uh, with something that they're building um just to see what that's like right or just jump on like with somebody who's learning kotlin and like learn along with them um and maybe not very like in depth and a lot but it's it's helped me just you know observe patterns that are common across this thing and i have to say that i think it's a lot harder for folks who are working in um say mobile or web or what have you to jump in, into um the some of the projects that i'd be working on because they would literally have to first spend a few weeks understanding the domain of say audio video multimedia what have you um then of course there's the language stuff if they might talk it's arguably easier to jump from c and c++ into java than it is to jump from java into c right mm-hmm. have you uh, found other people you know interesting people that you met along this journey who have maybe gotten into some software from different ways or bring different perspectives in some sense that's a good question let me think about this for a second i i have i have come across people who bring a sort of what i would think of as a systems approach mm-hmm. to whatever they might be working on so if they're working on uh, databases for example right mm-hmm. for them the one level lower might be how do how does uh, the the kernel block layer work right if you're doing direct block access or what does the file system layer look like so and they have a really deep and well formed understanding of that space um or if they're working on web uh, web things right just having a very deep understanding of if even if it's node js right like what are the uh, what are the characteristics of v8 with regards to garbage collection with regards to um uh, just the event loop and what kinds of latencies are normal what is not normal what kind of problems you might see when you really get down to squeezing uh, performance out of a system mm-hmm. right um and who, and it's the same one one level uh, below one level above thing right so understanding what it is that applications demand of these systems and then how these uh, systems actually under the hood um, provide the features that they do right so what does what does libuvi's uh, feature set look like that makes node um, as powerful as it is for example so let's also talk about maybe what are some misconceptions that people tend to have about low level programming and also common pitfalls that people entering this field could fall into so i think uh, one common uh, misconception that i think i have also had is that um, either systems programming as, as a whole or some aspect of it is sort of hardcore and that you're a better person if you can get in this space right like it's this order of respect that you get if you work on the arts curve and right you must be like 
some better breed of person i think that is a misconception at least in my opinion because it's not better maybe on weird in some way yeah like whatever it is that you're somehow different different yeah very different from yeah yeah and at least in my experience that wasn't the case right of course i i know folks who work on the kernel as part of a larger job just making sure that the overall system can deliver what they wanted to do or who just work on the kernel all day long and really enjoy that what i realized at least for me is that the kernel is very different from any big system right and i think that can apply to if i could say the same about gstreamer about pulse audio about linux multimedia in general right you have this big system it has a lot of complex pieces there's a lot of idiosyncrasies there are a lot of fine details that you need to understand to be able to work with it at some level of expertise right and uh, there are usually tools associated with it as sort of mental models that you pick up as you work on it right so I, in that sense i don't think there's a huge difference between say uh, working on a large complex java code base and working on any of the projects that i've mentioned so far right so i think that is that can even be a disappointment for some when they come from some other space into this entry like okay actually there's quite a lot of overlap in the core skill set that you bring to the table mm-hmm. those pitfalls um it does move slower you you mentioned this earlier and it's kind of spot on because uh, say if you're working in the automotive space right today you would be working on software that would go in a 2024 or 2025 model car and then that car would have a 5 to 10 year life cycle like five years very short like we're talking about a 10 year life cycle for that software right um and so therefore the the pace at which you're thinking about change is going to necessarily be slower mm-hmm. right and as a result of that you might end up uh, the pace at which you learn might become slower as well right mm-hmm. and the thing to watch out for is that uh, you don't lose that ability like new things become um scarier or like feel like a greater burden to take on mm-hmm. right and and the fact is that things do change right so even over the course of the last um 10 plus years that i've been working on M- on the embedded domain there have been pretty large changes on just um how these systems are built just in terms of tooling like how do i take all the software and make an image and put it on the device right like that has changed radically mm-hmm. in the time that i've been there and just knowing that these things exist um is important like you or say you know rust is taking the place of c++ or c++ has evolved so much since c++ 11 even mm-hmm. like just knowing all these things and being able to use that in your work advocating for hey maybe we should do something this way all of that has value mm-hmm. um i mean just even in pure self interest because it makes your life easier to be using better tools and all of that so the fact that things are slow uh, sometimes makes people makes people working in this space believe that things can't change or won't change very quickly and avoid change and that is a pitfall i think that um, is important to look out for mm-hmm. okay In- interesting uh, to touch on another point that i was talking about which is basically uh, you're working more with a system rather than humans in the sense to me one potential pitfall i could feel is somebody will do something and then the end result is something works at maybe the file system level or whatever but the amount of time it takes for you to feel the gratification of seeing a human use it could be a you know long time or it you could never feel it directly right that's actually completely on point like i i know um at least one uh person i can think off the top of my head probably quite a few if i think about it some more 
people who don't actually enjoy the work they're doing unless it goes in actual human's hands, right? which is perfectly valid. And sure. maybe that's, if you are in that space, like you want that quick feedback cycle, this might not be the place to work in necessarily, at least in the long term. Right, or at least you have to get adjusted to a longer gratification cycle. Right? Exactly, exactly. So for example, some of the work I did was on a sort of framework for building, like a system for um, smart speakers and smart soundbars. We built, we built this entire system. It would be sold by the silicon manufacturer to the people actually building the products. And then they would have to ship it finally to some end user and they'd be using some of our parts and some not some of the others. At the end of it, you don't even know if it's actually in the product that you're buying. Mm-hmm. So, so there is that, that level of disconnect. On the other side, right, as uh, one of the pulse audio maintainers, it's almost that if somebody realizes that this plumbing layer exists, it means we've failed. Mm. Right? Um, in that, somebody, so you'll see a lot of people, because of pulse audio storied history, complain about it. For sake of listeners, I think this is mostly in the Linux desktop space, right? People are like, I, why do I have to restart pulse audio or why does this thing even show up ever? Exactly. Because, I mean, the truth is like, we ship this, we ship maybe one release a year and that goes out to millions of desktops. And most of them I never hear back from. I have had to internalize that, hey, this work that I'm doing has some impact. And occasionally someone will come to me and say, hey, like I use this feature, I liked it. Or I'm using Pulsar, I've never had any problems, or I've had these problems, I found the solution, whatever that is. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. If someone were to start thinking about making a career in system programming today, you know, either just graduating from college or someone looking to switch from some other domain, uh, how would you suggest they go about it? I think uh, one thing that people have access to, especially in the last five to 10 years that was less so before is open source projects. Because inevitably, if you wanted to jump into um, say multimedia, there's a few open source projects, there's FMPEG, there's VLC, there's GStreamer, of course. And so there are all these projects. So, but of course, step one is um, possibly trying to identify a niche that you think would be exciting to you. And this is always kind of the, the hard thing is figuring out what you want to kind of jump into. But if you can um, pick something, then I think picking an open source project to um, even start looking at understanding the architecture of understanding the code of maybe if it's modular, looking at small modules and see how does it work? What does it do? What are the adjacent layers? How do they interact with it? That is a good way to get started. Um, conferences and talks are a good way to understand uh, broader context around the project, often because these things are not written down. Right. So so just uh, even if you don't understand everything that's going on, just immersing yourself in that space uh, is a good way to understand and also find community. So because a lot of these things um, do have a lot of people around who will be happy to help you get started if you're interested, right? So as, as long as you're coming in with the patience and perseverance to actually uh, work with the space, you inevitably find help um, getting started if you want to get involved. Okay, fantastic. I hope that's of use to our listeners who are thinking about this. Uh, so lastly, we want to say a little bit more about asymptotic, what you're doing, and also how people can reach out to you if they want to discuss or you know further understand systems programming. Absolutely. Asymptotic is a small consulting company, and mostly we work uh, on um, sort of low-level systems, primarily on multimedia, as we said. We're working with uh, someone who builds an API for people to embed video calls in their um, applications. 
right? And we're working on server-side stuff, which allows you to take audio and video, mix it together, store it to disk as recordings, send it out to a YouTube or Twitch or what have you. So kind of plumbing on the server-side, as it were. This protocol-level stuff, so RTP and uh, the real-time protocol and WebRTC, which is how uh, browsers do calls, all of that stuff is, uh, there's a lot of interesting challenges there. On the other side of it, we're doing a whole bunch of things on Pipewire and Pulse Audio. We recently added support for additional codecs to Bluetooth headsets that landed in uh, Pulse Audio. Um, you can reach me um, on Twitter as Luibu um, and Arun at asymptotic.io. Um, I'm, if, if anyone's interested in getting into the space or just anything around this, I'm happy to talk. Okay, fantastic. For listeners, I'll make sure to put his contact details in the show notes. Uh, the Twitter ID is Louis Wu, right? L-O-U-I-S-W-U. Yes. Okay, awesome, Arun. It was great talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. The pleasure was mine. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed our episode, do subscribe to the podcast and check out our show notes which provide more information on the topics discussed during the episode. Please follow us on LinkedIn at Through the Corporate Glass and on Twitter at Corporate Glass and share your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. You can also check out our website through the corporate glass.com. 